So Hebrews is written primarily to Jewish Christians who've just come out of Judaism. They've accepted Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And there's a strong temptation for them to go back to Judaism. Because Judaism is safe. Judaism is known. A lot of them will be facing persecution from both the Roman government, from the Jewish civilian authorities, and from their own families. A lot of people would disown a member of the family if they adopted Christianity. They would treat them as if they were dead. So the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to assure them that what you have gained by accepting Christ is greater than anything that Judaism offers you. Do not abandon your newfound faith and hope in Christ and go running back to Judaism. So he builds this argument, Jesus is greater. And in chapter 1, we see that Jesus is greater than the angels. And he uses a lot of the Old Testament to back this argument up. He goes to the book of Psalms primarily, which the Jews would have been very familiar with, and says, hey, these Psalms that are talking about God is creator, God is your king, God is the anointed one, those are actually talking about Jesus. In chapter 3, he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. So as great as Moses was, and the Jews considered him to be the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus is so much better than Moses was. And he uses this analogy. He says, as the builder of the house is greater than the house itself, so is Jesus greater than Moses. So in that analogy, we see how Jesus is the builder and Moses is the house, claiming that Jesus is the creator of Moses. Another allusion to Jesus' deity as the creator. And what we're starting today is we'll be looking at Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood or the priesthood of Aaron. I'll just put OT priesthood. All right. And before I begin, a point of clarification. I had that note written up there for the first time in weeks. The Sunday school class that attends here Sunday morning, they erased my board. So I pointed out that a lot of the adjectives used to describe the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, which I'll just read real quick. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And I made the argument that a lot of those adjectives describing the word of God can be applied to Jesus himself. I do want to clarify that this passage in the context is talking about the written word of God. The Jews would have understood that. From the law, the prophets, all the poetry of the Old Testament, all of that was considered the word of God. And that's what that passage is about. I just wanted to point out that Jesus, as the, the Logos, as the Word of God, as described in John 1, also has those same traits. But in context, that is talking about the Word of God, not Jesus. So this segues into where we'll be starting, which is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And we'll be talking about um, Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. And this is a theme. Langston, how are you doing, sir? How are you doing? We're in Hebrews chapter 4, um, starting in verse 14. And you yeah, have the sheets back there. Thank you. 
Now this theme, as Jesus says the high priest, has already been mentioned twice. Um, the first time it's mentioned is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And it's also mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. So we've already been introduced to this idea. And now the author is going to start going deep into this. And this will be a theme that runs all the way through chapter, all the way up to 9, I do believe. So let's start reading in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And I'll read 15 and 16, and then we will pray. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, let's pray. Father, I ask that you be with this time of study. Lord, I pray that I speak clearly and precisely. I pray that this will be a beneficial time of study. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so Jesus as our high priest. One of the first questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what is the role of high priest? And why is it important that the author of Hebrews identifies Jesus as our high priest? High priest makes intercession between man and God. Intercession is a very fancy word. What does that mean? That means he's the middleman okay. between man and God because man is not holy enough to approach God. So a priest has, if he does things exactly the way God prescribes him to do them in order to be in his presence, he can make intercession. He can, don't want to use that word, he can, he can make um atonement for their sins okay now someone on this side of the classroom what exactly did the priests do on behalf of God's people sacrifice. he did sacrifices if you remember a few weeks ago I drew a beautiful picture of the temple are you ready for some amazing artwork I mean don't be intimidated now by how awesome this is that's supposed to be a square we're here laughing. So you have this large outer courtyard. You have a place of washing, a place of sacrifice. You have the temple proper. And all of this was layers to show man how bad they are and how holy God is. People couldn't come past this, this outer wall. They weren't even allowed in the temple complex. Only the high priests were allowed to go inside of the temple proper and only about highest priest, the, the high priest rather, could go behind this curtain where he had the Ark of the Covenant here because man is sinful. So this whole elaborate system of priests was set up to show man you're sinful, you can't approach God. You need an intercessory. So when author of Hebrews is saying, hey, we have a high priest. He's not just a high priest. He's a great high priest. And he has passed through the heavens this is an allusion to the fact that Jesus is now sitting by God's throne, like he ascended up into heaven in, in Acts chapter 1, and he is the one who's interceding before us. And the rest of this argument, as we go through it, is going to show just how much better Jesus is at being a high priest than any human high priest ever did. Okay. 
So it talks about Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. How is Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, how can he sympathize with humans? What does it mean he understands our weaknesses? Because he became man. He became man. What all did he give up when that happened? His throne. He gave up his throne. So just picture a human king shedding his royal attire, the luxury that he would have in the palace, to put on the dirty rags of a pauper and live in squalor to better understand his, his population that he overruled. Okay? If you think about that, it is infinitely greater for the infinite God of the universe to have given up his position in heaven to take on human flesh and all the restrictions, all the pain and suffering that comes with that, to become a human and live a life here. So it says Jesus knows our weaknesses. Whatever weakness you have, Jesus has gone through it. He stubbed his toe. We, we talked about this before. Jesus stubbed his toe. He had to learn to walk. He fell down. He's seen friends and relatives die. He knows physical pain, emotional pain. He knows everything we're going through. What about being tempted? Was Jesus tempted? Okay. And when do we see him tempted? Uh, there was a time when he fasted. Okay. And the devil was trying to like uh, tell him to turn the stone into bread or something like that. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> Cast himself all the building. You know, have your angels swoop in and rescue you and just be a big display. Showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, you know, I'll give you all of these if you just bow down and worship me. Now Jesus has been tempted beyond what any human has been tempted. I don't think any of that has ever been offered to any human before, to the best of my knowledge. So Jesus has been tempted. And I would argue that it wasn't just that one temptation. He was never tempted at any other time in his life. Yes, sir? When he was in the garden, <clears throat> he was probably the greatest temptation because he said he was praying so fervently, so did not want to go to the cross. You're skipping ahead. Oh, but yes, that's good. No, we'll be talking about that. Yeah, he was tempted just as every other human was. Tempted to lie, tempted to you know, do all the things we want to do, but yet throughout his 33 give or take years on this earth, in spite of suffering every temptation imaginable to man, plus some, he never sinned once. This is a theme that comes up over and over, so we're going to talk about it over and over. Why is it so important that it says he was without sin. And I have that underlined in my Bible. Tempted as we were, yet without sin. Because that is a critical, critical piece of doctrine. The sacrifice has to be perfect. The sacrifice has to be perfect. If you look at the, the lamb that was to be sacrificed on the day of high atonement, the lamb had to be spotless. The lamb would be inspected. The lambs were bred for that purpose, and the best of the best would be the one that was offered. Had to be completely spotless. Jesus, oh no, excuse me, all of that was just a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. All those lambs that were slaughtered year after year after year, what was it, 1400 years, I think, from the time of Moses to the time of Christ? If I'm off by a century, that's okay. Think about all those lambs sacrificed. They were all pointing to the ultimate lamb who is Jesus. So when he went upon that cross, in order for him to take on our sins, he had to have none himself. And I've mentioned this before, but 
a majority of evangelicals that were quizzed about basic Bible doctrine would say, yeah, it's possible Jesus sinned. And that's an indictment on the church. So none of you have an excuse to say that. Jesus did not sin. He could not have sinned. For if he did, he would not be able to be a sacrifice, and we are all in hot water. All right, so because of this, look at verse 16. Because of Jesus is our high priest, because he understands our weaknesses, because he's been tempted like, like us, yet never sinned himself, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What allows us to go with confidence? Brother Bill. So, have you ever tried to do something that you really don't like to do, but you know I, I need to do it? So, like, for instance, you, okay, I am going to go on a diet. And I found this new 30-day diet from Dr. Shepard, who's supposed to be the world's greatest. And I'm into it 16, 17, 18 days, and... Somebody buys a whole, Halloween comes and they pass out candy like, and I finally said, I just, and I grab a Butterfinger. And two weeks later, I'm walking downtown. A buddy of mine says, hey, Bill. I said, yeah. He says, come in. What are you doing? I said, I'm just yelling your stuff. He said, come celebrate with me. I said, okay, what are you celebrating? He said, I just finished my 30-day diet. And... I want to buy you a free meal because I get to eat anything I want today. And he said, it was it was really tough. I said, man, I know how you feel. I tried that same diet on the 16th day I caved in. I said, you just, I understand. He says, no, you don't understand. You caved to day 16. I went all the way to day 30. Mm -hmm. You will never understand because you gave up halfway through, which is the story of my life with the exercise machine. <laughs> but Jesus never gave up from any arena. So anybody can come to him and say, I, I'm not appreciated. And he wasn't appreciated. And I really want to do, but I don't. And he wanted to, but he didn't. In every area, he was able to be my mentor, my example, because he, he went all the way. But he's so holy, he's so righteous, so how can we confidently approach him? Shouldn't we be scared and ashamed to approach God? <clears throat> I think, it, oh, excuse me, I think it boils down to humbleness. Mm -hmm. um, just imagine, thank you, God, like, I mean, figuratively, but anyway, just imagine going to school and then you're talking to the dean. You don't interact with the dean every day. So when you do talk to the dean, you kind of have those nerves and mm -hmm. jitters. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, you kind of humble yourself in a sense to receive whatever knowledge or whatever guidance that the dean has for you or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Same thing with God or God, Jesus. Um, I know, like, for me, I talk to God like how I'm talking to you all. But at the same time, there has to be a certain level of uh, sincerity and realness when you talk to God. For, for instance, if your sins that you know about advertently and, and inadvertently, you know, uh, you have to be honest, just like how you're honest for those that are married with your partner. 
And you have to have those tough conversations. I mean, granted, he doesn't talk back instantly, but you'll get an answer sooner or later. Do you think Jesus wants us to come to him like a child comes to a, a loving father? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's how... I mean, we, we've talked about this previously. I, I wasn't prepared to speak on this right now, but it says that when we are adopted into the family of, of God, Jesus calls us his brother. He says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brother. I'm not ashamed to talk about them to my father. So in that regard, you know, God loves us. How do we know he loves us? Well, he, he sent his son to die for us. That's the greatest expression of love that can ever be shown. So God wants that intimate relationship. He wants us to come to him and talk to him. So, yes, there's absolutely there's a sense of respect and awe and reverence. But the confidence is not a proud boasting, like, I own this place, I'm going to walk in, you know, with my hands in my pocket. But I'm walking in there, the confidence that God wants me to come to him. God wants me to cast my cares, cast my anxieties upon him. That's what God wants us to do. So that should give us confidence when we run to him for whatever the case may be. So there are two terms there. It says we can receive mercy and grace. Now, what is the difference between mercy and grace? Anybody have a good little working definition? I got mine, which are on your sheet. First one is, is mercy. What is mercy not getting? What you deserve. It's not getting the, the bad thing. Yes, yeah, not getting the bad thing or the negative thing that you deserve. Okay, so what do we as sinners deserve? Death. Death and hell. So because of God's mercy, we don't get death and hell. We avoid that negative. So now grace is the, I don't, not the opposite, that's, that's not the right thing. Opposite side of the same coin. Either way, what is grace? I should think out my God's analogies. Favor. God's favor. Do we deserve that favor? No. Okay. So my blank says grace is getting the positive that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment or wrath that you, your sins have earned you. Grace is getting heaven, which you do not deserve. Right. So all of this is offered at the throne of God, and we're told to confidently approach God's throne. And this is where when you sin and the devil starts you know, beating you up and telling you that you're not good enough, God can never love you, God can never forgive you, these are the type of verses that you can run to and say, hey, Satan, that's not true. And you can say it that politely. Or don't have to say it that politely. All right. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this is this the whole temple complex idea of the priest working inside this temple offer sacrifices on behalf of the sinful people who are not allowed to come into the temple on their own accord because they're not holy enough. So that's the job of the high priest, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, this is talking about the human high priest here, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. All right, so this idea of the priest 
offering sacrifices for his own sins. If you want to hold your finger there, flip back to Leviticus 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So it's near the beginning. I've heard stories of churches that they all use the Schofield Reference Bible, Mm -hmm. and they expected everybody to have that Bible, so they wouldn't say a reference. They'd say, turn to page 237. (laughs) And if you didn't have the right Bible, you were kind of out of luck. (laughs) Especially if they said, start reading at the third paragraph on the left page. (laughs) We don't have that. So Leviticus chapter 16, and let's look at verse 11, and I'm going to read 11 and 15. So this is God speaking. Aaron, this is Moses' brother, the first high priest, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for whom? Himself. And shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for whom? The people. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So this is when the priest takes that lamb, where they wash it, they sacrifice it, they take it here into the holy place, and then the high priest walks behind that three-inch thick, 90-foot-tall, 30 foot wide or so curtain, the veil, behind the curtain, and only the high priest allowed to go back there where the Ark of the Covenant is, and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that is for the sins of the people. Now, he had already offered a sacrifice for himself. Why? Because he's a sinner. Because he is a sinner. Yes, he's a high priest. Yes, he's called by God to this office. He's ordained, consecrated, set apart, all of those things. But he's still just a sinful human being like everybody else. So he has to make that sacrifice before he is fit to offer sacrifices on behalf of anybody else. So that is where the author of Hebrews is referencing back. Remember, as a primarily Jewish audience, they would have been intimately familiar with all of this. So he didn't feel the need to put a nice drawing on the board or explain that stuff in detail. The Jewish audience would have known all of that as soon as he said it. All right, so back to chapter 5. Any questions so far? No. Have I missed any of the blanks so far? No? Awesome. I'll take that as a no. All right, verse 4. And no one takes this honor of being the high priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we have the author of Hebrews is going to make some very bold statements. Just like the high priest in the Old Testament was appointed by God, he was called out by God to that office, 
Jesus, too, has been called out. And he's going to say there are two statements where God did this. And he's quoting from the book of Psalms. We've already mentioned this a couple of times, but it's worth bringing up. A lot of the Psalms are messianic in nature. It means that they're primarily about Jesus. When they were written back around the time of David, 1000 BC, give or take, obviously the original author and the audience didn't really know that. But they are quoted heavily in the New Testament. So Psalms 2, Psalm 22, and Psalm 110 are all very, very, um, very, very, are heavily about Jesus. Very messianic. So he, in this case, he's going to be quoting from Psalm chapter 2 when he says, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Now what's interesting about Psalm 2, when it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you, that was said to a king on his coronation day. It had nothing to do with this human's physical birth. So God speaking to the king of Israel on his coronation day, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is about his ascension to the throne. This, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, is quoting from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, by the way. And he says, you are now a priest. So there are two offices that these quotes are saying are attributed to Jesus. The first one is in regards to a kingship. And he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's a, a kingship quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 110 saying, you are a priest. Now what is the, the problem with saying there is now two offices that are being held simultaneously by one person. Why would that be a problem in Hebrew society under the, under the Mosaic law? It wasn't allowed. What was, what was it? To be, <clears throat> to be a priest and a king. You were not allowed to be a priest and a king. Separate offices. In fact, the first king of Israel, King Saul, the proverbial straw that broke his kingship was when he offered sacrifices because he was too, in too much of a hurry to wait on the priest to get there. And in spite of all the other bad things he did, that was what finally got him removed, or his family removed from the throne upon his death and given to David. So those two were never supposed to touch. But here the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is going to hold two titles. He's going to hold the title, uh, the office of king, and he's going to be a priest. And this last, the last word in that quote brings up a lot of stuff, and we'll get into it, so we're not going to spend too much time on it. But what in the world is the order of Melchizedek? Because under the Old Testament priesthood, what was that priesthood called? Levitical. Levitical priesthood. We have the Levitical priesthood. If you were of the tribe of Levi, Levi, it was your job, your, your lot in life, you're going to be in some way associated with the temple. You might not be the guy you know, offering sacrifices. That was only the high priest. And whose family did he have to come from? He had to come directly from Aaron. So it would be the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. You could be one of the guys you know, who was making sure the ground was level before the tent was put up. Either way, as a Levite, you were serving in the temple. So now Jesus has nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. He's not of that line. What tribe is he from? Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. 
Now, Judah is associated with the office of king through, uh, through David. So these, this quote here, Hebrews 5 and 6, is wants you to see Jesus is going to be combining two offices, something that is not allowed under the Mosaic law. And the priesthood that oversees the Mosaic law is the Levitical priesthood. Since there's another order, and this is of Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. Right, somebody from this side. Where have we seen or heard Melchizedek? Genesis 14. Yes, but you're not on this side of the classroom. <laughs> but that is absolutely right. <laughs> Genesis chapter 14. Now, we're not going to get too far in, into talking about Melchizedek because that is the entire subject of chapter 7, which we'll probably hit in about two weeks. But Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14. Read that story on your own. We're not going to... Not going to get into that today, but like I said, we'll probably spend two weeks on that alone. All right. Now, if Jesus has been appointed a high priest, and this is this is not in your Bible. Well, it is, but it's not found in these passages. When was he appointed a high priest? And this is where you're allowed to answer, and I'm not going to just yell at you if you're wrong. Because I never asked myself this question until recently. When was he appointed high priest? What are some answers? Go. After his, well, when he rose from the dead, right? Okay. Let's just write down the idea. Okay, Ascension. If you write sloppy, people don't know if you spelled it wrong. Okay, that's one. Isaiah 53. Okay. Isaiah, what's Isaiah 53? So when that was written? Yeah. What's that, like 700 B.C.? Maybe so. I think. Just a prophecy about it, yeah. Okay. This passage here was written about 1,000 B.C. By this passage, I mean Psalm 110 was about 1,000 B.C. When was Jesus appointed high priest? Because I would say Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 were probably written roughly around this time period. Was he appointed a high priest when the words were written? There's no wrong, well, there are wrong answers. Well, he was able to forgive sins during his ministry okay. as he walked the earth. Um, I'm just thinking out loud. Well, good. I mean, that, that, that's good. That, that's what I want people to do. Just think, when? So, during his earthly ministry. So, maybe... Well, he was able to forgive sins, but I'm thinking about the role of the high priest being mm -hmm. an intercessory between man and God. And... Upon his ascension, it says that he now sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for man. Okay. So that sounds like the priesthood. First thing I thought was baptism. That, that, yeah. At his death. Okay. Because he becomes the sacrifice, and he allows himself to be sacrificed. Okay. Yeah, I think I think you're right. That's kind of where I go. What do you think? I don't. Oh, you should try it sometime. Relax and <laughs> Very stimulating. The, the first thing that just popped in my head, just without you know thinking or reading, I just went baptism. Because he said the words, you are my son, today I've begotten you. I went to the baptism where um, John the Baptist was there mm -hmm. baptizing people. Mm -hmm. And Jesus comes out, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth or the world. And then Jesus says, hey, baptize me. 
he says, now you should be baptizing me. He goes, no, you need to do this. So he you know, baptized him, put him under the water, brought him out from the water. And you saw heaven open up and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and it rested on Jesus. And he heard God speaking, saying, this is my beloved son <clears throat> in whom I am well pleased. So that's baptism. That's when he was anointed. The Holy Spirit came upon him. His ministry has begun. He's our high priest. Yeah, very good. He became the sacrifice at his death. What what did it look like for the Levitical priest to be appointed? Like, was there was there like a was there like a ceremony for it, or like what age were they usually when they got put into that role as the high priest? You, in order to be a priest, you have to be at least thirty. Now, as far as the actual how the high priest himself was chosen, I'm not sure. I know they had to be of the line of Aaron, but after a few generations, you probably have several people to pick from. You probably had to wait till the previous high priest died. Yeah, because so you, you got the office, you held it for life. Right. Yeah. So you had to wait till he died before you. I think died. he's asking what the ceremony was. I know, I'm like trying to, to think. Well, we're talking through it. Anointed? Yeah. You would have been anointed. You've been given the. So the would that have been yeah, because they would have a robe ascension. with the jewels. Yeah, the, what's that thing called? Ephod? Ephod? Yes. Yeah, there it is. Ephod, and they would have all the jewels. And I'm wondering if there's like a connection. If, hmm. if we're talking about an actual event in Christ's ministry, then I'm just trying to think if there's like a, an event that's like. The appointment of the Levitical high priest. Well, the anointing at his birth, or not at his birth, but when the when the wise men come and they give him his stones. <coughs> so that's not at the birth, but close to yeah, it. He wasn't officially appointed to his ministry till probably his baptism. Or about his father's work in okay. the temple. All right. So I'm going to give you. What I think. Okay. What I think. But it's this was fun though. I mean, th this is this this makes people think about because there's no verse that says in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke where it says or Acts right before the ascension when it says, and now you're a high priest. Right. So we, we're kind of less left to to figure this out to to rationalize through it, and it, it's a fun exercise. All right. So here are my notes. Where are my notes? <clears throat> All right, so we're going to flip back. Look in Hebrews 2.14. And you guys thought of a lot more than I did. I only had three things. And you got, I didn't think about death. I didn't think about Isaiah 53. So that's good. People are thinking. Thinking is good. All right, so Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Who wants to read... 14 through 18, but be prepared to be interrupted. Now, we've already talked about this, these verses, so this should be somewhat familiar. Can I get a volunteer? Go ahead. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, now hold on right there. Now, up until now, what event are they talking about? What, what, what part of Jesus' life? His earthly ministry, his crucifixion, what, what words have been mentioned a couple of times there? My earthly 
Okay, so this is talking about his earthly his ministry and his death. So primarily focus on his death, all right? Now keep reading. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, hold on right there. All right, so verse 14, 15, and 16 is talking about he's destroyed the power of death through his death on the cross. And then verse 17, it says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So right there, that's the incarnation. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So I'm going to make an argument that he could not be our high priest until he took on flesh. So because of that, I'm going to eliminate anything B.C., including his birth. Anything up and he had to take on flesh. So it's at least from his birth after. But it says he had to be like us every way. And verse 14, 15, and 16, we're talking about his, his death, right? So I'm going to argue that it had to happen. Baptism's not it. So now we're left with death or ascension. Is everybody with me so far? Okay. Are you with me? Okay. You don't have to agree with me, but at least follow the logic. Okay. I look at Hebrews 7, 25, so we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Yes, sir. So you're crossing baptism off. Is that correct? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I crossed off baptism because the author in 14, he starts saying that it was the death that made all these things possible. The ability to defeat, uh, defeat Satan, um, deliver people who were subject to, to the fear of death and slavery. His death made all that possible. He says he had to be like us in every way in order to become a high priest. So I think that's at least after, up to his death, if not that event, sometime after. Based on that. And I have more verses. All right, so Hebrews 7. So we'll get a preview. Um, 7, 25, and 26. Can I get someone else who has not read to read verses 25 and 26? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Okay. And I have underlined there, exalted above the heavens. That is where our high priest is now. Mm -hmm. okay. And that's going to build up to the next one, Hebrews chapter 5. So we're, we're just, we'll get to these verses again. Yeah, we, we'll be reading these again later. Somebody read 9 and 10 for me. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designed by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. All right. So at what point, so according to verse 9 right there, he was made perfect. And my, my board notes are horrible. That's, that's why I'm glad you have handouts. He was made perfect. Then designated high priest. What's that? So perfectionist. Okay, there. 
So he wouldn't be made perfect until he's dead. That's my argument. That's a really good argument. <laughs> so the, and therefore, made perfect at his death. And now we're going to now we're going to get to the, the final thing. No question. Wouldn't it be resurrection? Why? Versus death. Why? <clears throat> See, you're on the right track. So so keep going. The resurrection was the was the final defeating of death. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So it can't be just death. It has to be resurrection. If there is no resurrection, does the death mean squat? Mm-hmm. It means death nothing. Yeah. It means that that sin or death has defeated mm-hmm. Christ. Okay. So now we're talking, it's not not just a death. Okay, the final one, Hebrews chapter 9. Who has not read yet? Who wants to read? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Skipping ahead, but we'll get to this in about February. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy place places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption okay so when christ appeared as a high priest so i'm going to say up until this point he has not appeared as a high priest when he appeared as a high priest of good things that have come through a greater and more perfect tent okay why is he talking about tents? Why would Christ walk through a greater and more perfect tent, which he says, one that is not made with hands, that is not of creation? So when I think of tent, you know, I take my kids, and I think of a tent that's shaped like this that has a little zipper door, and you put an air mattress in there. Mm-hmm. Is this what he's talking about? No. Okay. What does he mean, a tabernacle? So we're not talking about this tent, so, so ignore what looks like a doghouse. We're talking about this, which actually doesn't look like anything. We're talking about this. And he says he entered through um, the curtain. That curtain is this veil right here. That was three inches thick, multiple layers, really ornate. He says he, when he appeared as a priest, Enter into that temple with behind the veil, one that's not made with human hands, one that's not a creation. So this is not the temple that Herod built. Mm-hmm. What temple is this? There's a seat in the center. He entered yes. into heaven. You think there's a temple in heaven? Yes. Currently? Mm-hmm. When Moses was receiving the law, and we're getting to this later. Hebrews brings this up. So I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on it because spoilers. But it says, Abraham was, uh, Abraham, Moses was told to build everything exactly based on the pattern that I'm going to show you. So God had a pattern. And everything that he did is a reflection of what's in heaven. It says, Jesus entered into a greater and more perfect tent that's not a creation. He entered into the holy place of the temple inside of heaven, and unlike a human priest who brings the blood of a lamb, what blood did he bring? His own. His own. He walks up into the heavenly temple, 
and he pours his blood on it. So I would say that Jesus became a high priest at his ascension into heaven. I like it. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, yes. making intercession, doing exactly intercession. what a high priest does. All right. Now I got to find my spot. We left off. There we go. Chapter uh, verse, verse seven. So that's when I say Jesus was made a priest. Now, obviously, it was ordained. Thousands of years, eternity passed, but it happened. He appeared as the high priest upon his ascension. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up, offered up prayers and supplications. And listen to how he offered up prayers and supplications. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him, Jesus, from death. All right, so let's ask ourselves there. Hey, Bill, when do we see Jesus crying? In the garden. In the garden. So he's praying to God. He's begging his father, Father, if, it, if, if in any way possible, I'm paraphrasing, that you can bail me out of this, I would greatly appreciate it. And he's crying so much. It said, now, he's had sweat drops of blood. Mm -hmm. And that is an actual physical condition that can come upon somebody when they're going through great emotional distress. <clears throat> Where the stress in their body, the blood pressure, actually causes the little, what do you call those things? Capillaries, thank you, to rupture in the sweat glands, and you can have blood coming out of your, your pores, which would have <clears throat> made you very sensitive to any further touching sensation. And we know what happens a few hours later. So Jesus was begging his father to take this cup away from him. And when he says, take this cup, what is he, what is he asking? What's this cup? I don't want to assume oh, everybody knows this, this stuff. The sacrifice yeah. that you're undergoing. The cross that he's before him. Yeah. Father, please, 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 is there anything you can do to keep me from going on that cross? I would be grateful. But then he says what? Not my will, but yours be done. So I, I agree with you, Bill. That was the greatest temptation that Jesus faced. That was greater than anything Satan could throw at him. That's greater than any temptation man could do. I do not want to go through what I know I'm about to experience. But yet he was perfectly obedient and followed through anyway for our benefit. So we see him doing this, and he was heard because of his reverence. And this is, this is a hard thing to understand. God heard him. His father understood him. But he still said, no, you're going through it. And sometimes that's, we always want answered prayer, but we don't always like the answer we give. And that's, that's simply the reality. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. He wasn't just you know, skipping his way, smiling, singing a song. He was terrified. He was in emotional and physical agony of just the reality of knowing what's going to happen to him. But yet he still never sinned. He was perfectly obedient. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So that whole cross thing, Jesus was learning obedience. Now, does this mean that he was ever disobedient? Mm -mm. 
It says he was made perfect in verse 9. Does that mean he was ever imperfect? We've already spoken about this. Again, a theme. Hebrews keeps bringing these themes back up. Because hadn't been fully matured yet. Correct. Because what, what have I said is a good one-word definition of perfect? When you see perfect in the Bible, what can you say? It's mature. one of your blanks. Mature. Mature. Complete. I use the word complete. Complete. His work was not complete until he died on that cross. Had he not died on that cross, then nothing else he did would have mattered. And what proved that his death on the cross was accepted was the what? Resurrection. Resurrection, as, as you were swinging the drink. It's going to be good timing. Now, answer. That was a good time. Yes, sir. I have a question. Yes. And I might be far in left field, but if we talk about obedience and how Jesus was perfect and complete mm -hmm. and all that, how was he disobedient? He never was. So when it says he learned obedience, the, the final act that he had to obey was going to the cross. Would you, would you substitute obedient with the obedience with discipline? Obedience is part of discipline, or discipline is part of being obedient. So when we see verses like Jesus became perfect, Jesus learned obedience, what we're saying is that as he can... He did continue in it. Continual obedience. Continual obedience. would be more like a consequence of the result of disobedience. Well, he never would have. No, I what know he wouldn't. That's why I don't know. Oh, okay. Discipline as far as, as learning to do what needs to be done. Right. Well, yes. Like, I'm, I'm going to discipline myself to run every day after work. I, I don't. But no, discipline myself to that. Yeah, not eat sugar after 8 o'clock at night. I, I failed to do that. I think it's, yes, sir. it's like you can't run a marathon when you're sick. And because you can't run a marathon doesn't mean you're a failure. Your, your body's just not constructed to do that. Uh, or it doesn't mean you're disobedient. Mm -hmm. If you keep on running, you can run a marathon. So you become perfect. You become complete. Not that you were disobedient before, but you simply did not have the physical capacity to do that yet. Uh, you have to grow in all this. You don't start out learning um, chemistry. Mm -hmm. You start out learning your equations. And then you finally get to the place where you understand chemical reactions. Or your chemistry teacher. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's, everybody go to Luke 2. Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 40. For we got about 10 minutes before the kids get released, so I'm, I'm going to read this section for expediency. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. So we're talking about Jesus maturing, learning, learning obedience, being disciplined. And this is talking about Jesus. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So right now we see Jesus had to physically mature, just like any other child. He had to intellectually mature, like any other child. I like the nasty better than okay. what you just read because it's more clear about the progression. It says the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing 
and wisdom. Yeah, that that uh, yes, and I, I like that God, too. Yeah, was it was upon him. So he's increasing in wisdom. It's not that he was ever unwise. Mm-hmm. He just was growing and increasing in wisdom. Yep. And that goes to your point over here is that he was increasing in his experience of obeying those things that are incredibly tough. And the more the suffering kept ramping up as he had to continue to obey God's will, it's a he learning. He always thing. obeyed. He yep. always obeyed, but it, it was tough. Bigger and bigger Clearly, bigger. he's yeah. Sweated blood mm-hmm. in the last it measure. It might have been the first time that he had the opportunity to be like, I don't want to do this. Right. Death was not, you know, he knew that death was not coming at certain times mm-hmm. when they were trying to kill him. He's like, yeah, this is not the time. Sorry, dude. And walks off. And so this is the first time that that's, that temptation is there. And so now his obedience is complete. He has passed that final test. That yeah. test. So contrary to the horrible 1970s movie, that is the last temptation of Christ, not mm-hmm. what that movie talked about. If you don't know what that is, you can Google that when you get home. All right, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Passover would be when they make the annual sacrifice, would take the spotless lamb, the high priest sacrifice, and take it over there. This is that event they're going to Jerusalem for. Every year they would do this. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents, turn the page, did not know this. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Right now, what we need to understand is that Mary and Joseph are not negligent parents. At 12 years old, in that day and time, you were considered a son of the law. You were considered kind of an adult. You could make your own decisions. And this wasn't like, you know, the family gets in their minivan, they drive there, they do their thing, they get in the minivan, they drive back. They would have been moving with large number of relatives because everybody came to Jerusalem at this day, the, the Feast of the Passover, to participate in this, bringing their lamb to the temple. So when he didn't show up, they figured, oh, he's just with Uncle Bob or something. Well, then a few days or, or a day later, they're like, hey, Uncle Bob, where's Jesus? And he says, I don't know. They're like, hey, you know, they ask aunts, uncles, cousins, I'm like, oh, no, where is he? They go back and looking for him. All right, picking up in verse 46. So they get back to Jerusalem. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. In other words, he's sitting with the most educated men of Jerusalem in the temple. He's listening. He's listening to their teachings, and he's asking them questions. He's learning. He's he's debating with the Ph.D. scholars of his day at 12. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they were quizzing him too. Well, tell me, young man, what do you think about this? And he had just an an awesome answer. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, their hometown, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And verse 52 is what I have underlined. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So that means that wisdom, stature, and favor. So wisdom, stature, and favor. Okay, so at the age of 12 on a scale of 1 through 10, let's just say Jesus was a 5 in all of these. And after that, he was a 6. He increased. And then years later, you know, he moved from a seven. This is not saying he's sinful. It's just like every other child, he gets smarter. He gets more emotionally mature. He gets physically taller. And as those things happen and his understanding of who he is and what his role is to be, his favor with God increases. Because that's what the Bible says. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man as well. So we see Jesus growing, maturing. He is sinless, but he became the perfect, the complete sacrifice, or the, all he should be upon his death. And it was validated because of the resurrection, and when he ascended to heaven, he became our high priest. So much better than anything offered under the Old Testament. And we will continue this theme next week. Does anybody have any questions over what I covered today? Do I need to do any corrections <laughs> next week? <clears throat> All right. If there are no questions, then I will see you next week.